This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In the United States, since the Capitol riots a couple of weeks ago, there's been a lot of discussion about regulating the hate speech and conspiracy theories that flourish on social media. And cracking down has been a big part of that. Now, in some cases, it's been the companies themselves, like Google, which owns YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, and those companies are suddenly deciding that it's time to crack down on what their platforms are being used for, or what's being said or shown there. That discussion, though, is one that many countries are having, too, not just the United States, but Canada. Places like Australia and Germany are taking on or have already taken steps to regulate Internet content. And in Canada, it's on the table. In fact, the federal government has for months now been discussing and consulting about this issue. So what can we expect that kind of Internet regulation to look like here? Well, earlier we had a chance to catch up with Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault to find out more. Well, Minister Guibault, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Tell me, is the government considering regulating social media and in what way? Well, what we're looking at is uh, is to bring forward legislation that would, in fact, uh, enable us to develop regulation uh, around a certain number of issues. For example, child, child pornography uh, online, obviously, um, incitement to violence, to terrorism, um, uh, hate speech. So these are the sort of things we want to look at as part of this new legislation. Is this heightened now, the concern or the awareness of doing this in light of what we've seen happening in the United States over the last few weeks? Well, I think it's just one further example of why we need to do this. But obviously, we haven't started working on this, you know, beginning of January, nor um, when the, the just before Christmas, the issue of Pornhub was very alive in, in mm-hmm. Canadian media. This is something we've been working on for, for, for months. I mean, you obviously can't develop new legislation on the corner of a table over a couple of weeks. It, it takes it, it takes a bit of time. Uh, so we have been, well, last summer, we, we were in fact holding consultations. We, 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 we spoke with more than 50 organization experts. Uh, just last week, I spoke to a number of platforms. So this is something that's, that's been ongoing for, for quite some time. So how do you decide then what will be regulated and what is the cutoff for something like that? Like, where's the nuance there? Well, I think on, on, on issues such as child pornography, uh, incitement to violence or terrorism, there's not a lot of gray area there. It's pretty black and white. Right. Um, on, on, on hate speech, you, you're right. This is, this is an area where we have to thread carefully. Um, you, you don't want to impede free speech. Um, and that's certainly not what we're trying to do with, 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 the, with this legislation. They are, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled, uh, has developed criteria on what, in their view, 
constitute hate speech. So we feel that, you know, this is pretty solid ground to be to be standing on. But the government will not be developing a new definition. We will be using uh, an existing definition, existing criteria that has gone through our court system in Canada. So that, that's what we will be basing uh, the, 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 that particular aspect, the, the hate speech aspect of the, the legislation on. You said that you have met with some of the social media companies uh, in the last little while. What have they had to say about this? Are, are they willing to help out with this? Actually, yes, um, you'd be surprised, but a number of them, not all of them, but quite a few of them have actually publicly called on government to, to, to come up with regulation on, on this issue. Because right now, I mean, they're feeling the, 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 all the heat. Uh, it's all on them, and, and they, don't, they don't always know what to do. And we've seen it in, in, in the United States. I think it's a very clear example of not, them not being too sure what to do. And then when something really bad happens, then they decide to intervene. But you know, upon reflection, and that's one of the questions I, I, I had for many of them, you know, what, what, could, have, what could government have done, you feel, might have helped prevent what happened uh, in Washington on, on January 6th? Because, you know, upon reflection, we have this, this experience now. So they're quite open to, to, to dialogue. They're quite open to, to, to talk about it. They probably won't like everything that's in the regulation. But I think that overall, they agree it's, it's necessary. So is there a country, is there another jurisdiction that has done or gone down the road that Canada is considering? We've looked at a number of different models. There's there, there's only really a handful of countries in the world that have actually done that. Um, Germany, France, Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, just before Christmas, uh, adopted a new legislation on that. So it, it's not in place yet. It will be that the regulation uh, will be developed in, in the coming months. So we have looked at all, all these models very carefully. We've been speaking with them. Uh, just this week, I, I spoke to the Australian Economic commissioner um, who um, and that office has been in place since 2015 so Australia is probably one of the countries that has the most experience um, d- doing this um, and has done so uh, many would argue more successfully than others so it's certainly uh, it's certainly a system we're looking at very very carefully and our officials have been exchanging information to try I mean, we're trying to learn from the best experience out there and also there are things that didn't work so well as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, what the do's and don'ts and how does this, because you can't simply, you know, it's one thing to look at how a system works in a country, but no two countries are, are the same in terms of their, their, their laws, their regulations, their, their cultural practices. So we, you can't just cut and paste something. You have to adapt it to the Canadian reality, and that's right. what we're working on. So what is the timeline for something like this? When can Canadians get an idea of how this is going to work? I, I would say um, that the legislation will be tabled in the House of Commons uh, in a matter of weeks. Matter of weeks. Okay. Will this tra- change? Will this change in any way the Canadian experience of, of people going online? Like, how will they notice that there's there's a difference now? Well, I think if we're successful, I think what um, what Canadian will see is uh, is a much more. Um, it, interesting and agreeable environment uh, online so far uh, far less violence 
uh, and, and violent content um, and, and, and hate speech. Um, and in fact, when we've, I've looked at that, a lot of, of, of data showing that more and more Canadians feel unsafe when, um, when, when they go on a number of these platforms. Um, and, and, and sometimes, and, and quite, a, quite a large percentage of them, feel that this, this violence and, and this hate does, doesn't stay online. They, it, 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 more and more, they, they, it's brought onto the real world. So clearly, Canadians want government to, governments to, 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 to intervene. I think they, they, they've, been, they've been asking us to do so, and that's exactly what, what we will do. All right. Well, hopefully we'll talk to you again when we get closer to getting more about this legislation. But thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure to see me. That is Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault talking about the ways in which the Canadian government is thinking about well, regulating social media. We are not the only country going down this road. The United States having these discussions. Australia uh, has already started this and they are far down the road. Germany as well. So can it be done? Can you take all that awful stuff off of social media? Can you make sure it doesn't get there uh, and still have the other enjoyable parts of that experience that people love? It's going to be a tricky balance. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. The last 24 hours, we're hearing an awful lot about the Office of the Governor General here in Canada because Julie Payette has resigned that appointment amid allegations of harassment from staff members. Joining us now to talk more about this is David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Uh, morning, Simi. Yeah, it's been a busy news week. No Biden kidding. And how this and and we got the Biden Trudeau call coming up this afternoon. But right. yeah, Ottawa's really talking about this GG situation. It's it's just bizarre. It is so bizarre because there had been like hints about this the last couple of years. But what got us to this point yesterday, David? Yeah, actually, more than hints, lots of um, employees at Rideau Hall. Of course, Rideau Hall is the governor general's official residence, but also the, the you know, the staff that supports her work, uh, largely ceremonial, but still some important constitutional roles that Gigi has. Uh, so some of these employees were coming forward saying they had left meetings with Payette and or her top aide, who was a handpicked friend of Payette's. People were coming out of these meetings in tears. Even RCMP bodyguards who assigned to protect the GG were saying, this is a terrible boss. So the PM took these allegations seriously. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, ordered up a third-party investigation, and the report landed on its desk this week. And though that report has not been made public, uh, lots of uh, folks who've seen it say it is, quote, scathing. So Trudeau called Payette in. They had a meeting. And basically, you know, Trudeau said to her, you know, you can't continue and you're going to have to resign or I'm going to have to go to the Queen and ask her to relieve you, which, again, just unprecedented, un- yes. uncharted territory. So Payette quit. Uh, so she, she put out a statement. It's a bit of an odd statement. Um, yeah. You know, she says uh, she doesn't really seem to take responsibility for the toxic workplace she just acknowledges that one existed seems to sort of suggest her aid was more of an issue in any event she's out and uh and um and now trudeau's got to find another governor general and the thing here that trudeau's going to talk about this when he speaks to reporters a little later this morning here in ottawa um, when he came into office, when Trudeau came into office, there was a process that Prime Minister Harper had set up, a vice-regal committee, independent and eminent Canadians, little committee to, you know, vet uh, potential candidates right. for this important job. And Trudeau said, nah, not going to do that, and just 
pick basically picked by it thought it was a great pick astronaut female science and engineering it checked off all sorts of boxes for the you know the 2015 era trudeau government but they didn't really do any vetting and subsequently you know any number of reporters organizations our organization others you know went and talked to where payette used to work at the canadian olympic committee the canadian space agency we talked to rcmp bodyguards any number of them could have told the pm she's a terrible boss and she's a terrible colleague um and that might have thrown up some red flags. So, you know, Trudeau kind of certainly bears some responsibility. Not that Payette doesn't yeah. either. And we're in this we're in this crazy situation. Got to find a new GG. And how do we do that? And so, what are the next steps that are going to happen here? And that is that is the sort of the the story I think today. So I mentioned the prime minister is going to speak to reporters. Uh, certainly, he's going to get questions from us. I suspect a lot about that process and the timeline. Uh, it can take a little while and. Typically, governors general can serve really forever, but um, generally speaking, it's been about a five-year term. That's sort of been the process. Now, the last person to be governor general, that was David Johnston, and he was seen, I think, widely by people to be a very successful yeah. uh, in that role. He, he faced some tricky things and, and handled them you know, with grace, dignity, all those sorts of things. He went for seven years because when Trudeau took office, Trudeau wanted to find a governor general, and Johnson's term was, quote, up at five years, but Johnson stayed on for a couple extra years while Trudeau found a new one because we don't really, we always want to have a governor general. Um, in this case, while we don't have one, the chief justice of the Supreme Court does the governor general's work. And you think about one of the really important things the GG does is, uh, says yes or no when a prime minister yeah. asks to dissolve parliament and we're in a minority parliament and this is this is a live issue uh so we'll we'll see how we'll see what the prime minister says today about a the process the timeline um, I wish I could give you a short list. There's any number of people on Twitter, Facebook, you I've name it. Who that, have, yes. Yeah, and you know everybody. Else. Let's <laughs> everybody get Bernie Sanders with those mittens. You know, uh, um, uh, let's get Celine Dion. Everybody loves Celine. So we'll we'll see. Um, you know, there's a lot of people saying good opportunity for the first Indigenous Governor General. Although for some Indigenous people, that does present it's a bit awkward because it you're is, the Queen's yeah. representative, and you know that the tension between Indigenous groups has been with the Crown. So. Uh, we'll see what the prime minister yeah. decides to do. Um, some people have said, you know, Ottawa's mayor, Jim Watson, uh, bilingual, um, he's gay. And, you know, you could have the first GGG gay governor general that, you know, would be a new thing. Uh, wouldn't have to move very far. And maybe he could do True. the job of mayor and governor general at the same time. <laughs> breaking so, new ground you know, all over the place. Breaking new ground. We'll see. It's, <laughs> okay. it's, we're going to find out some more on that today. David, thank you so much for that this morning. All right. Appreciate okay, that. Simi, have a great day. You Cheers. too. David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Are they happening? Are they not happening? I mean, there's a lot of speculation and confusion right now about the Tokyo Olympics. They've already been postponed from last year. They were supposed to go ahead this summer. But there were some reports yesterday that suggested that officials behind the scenes were considering canceling them altogether. However, 
Japanese officials have since come out and said no, they are determined to have the 2020 Olympics go ahead in Tokyo at some point. In 2021, here. Meanwhile, the Canadian men's basketball team is facing fines for refusing to play during the pandemic. Remember, the Olympic basketball trials were scheduled to be held in Victoria back in June, but no word yet on what has become of that or how do you move forward. So, what are some of these Canadian teams facing? Well, joining us now is Howard Kelsey, former member of the Canadian men's Olympic basketball team and, of course, an inductee into the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame. Howard, thanks for being here. Morning, Timmy. Where are we at right now with the Canadian men's basketball team? Like, are they, can they even practice together or what's going on? Well, they wouldn't normally be practicing together at this time of year, anyways.、Uh, the majority of our players are in the NBA. Some of them are playing in Europe if they're not in the NBA, but the majority that are expected to be in Victoria, which is still on. To the best of my knowledge, from June 29th to July 4th,、uh, they would be getting together、uh, as they finish their NBA season. So it's a very tight window at the best of times.、Uh, the biggest problem is this fine, which respectfully seems quite ludicrous. So I would back Glenn Grunwald, our president. And Nick Nurse, not only the Raptors coach, but the coach of Team Canada for the Olympics. In、uh, extreme disappointment. I think it's a silly decision. It's hard to believe. How could you impose something that overrides、uh, medical、yeah. common sense? And I don't think that FIBA actually would have the authority to do that. I would think that the WHO、uh, would preside over decisions of inter country travel where you're demanding a team to be present. So, I think that that's a decision that's going to have to be challenged, and especially the severity of $250,000, which for the NBA may not be a lot, but for national teams that are amateur associations, that's actually a significant amount of money. Is Canada the only country kind of facing that situation? We're the only one so far that's been、uh, imposed that for the decision not to go、uh, to the Caribbean. We were on an away qualifying tournament. To the best of my knowledge, they've given a, a bit of a wiggle room, but I still think it's ludicrous that if we show up in February,、uh, the fine will only now be halved. Well, it would be to $125, but the consequence of February, apparently, as of yesterday, as they scramble in FIBA,、uh, they're saying that if we don't show up in February, that we actually would be. Put in a situation where we could lose our rights to participate in 2024, which it appears that they're just digging a bigger and bigger、yeah. hole with FIBA. That is absolutely ridiculous, Howard. Like, what, is, what are the next steps here for the Canadian team? Like, that, this can't be right. Well, it's not right. And again, I'm、uh, closely aligned with Glenn Grunwald on many issues as the、uh, chair of the Veterans Committee of our Alumni Association.、Uh, I mean, he just got blindsided by this. Uh, so, we're, we're just getting the information this week that FIBA has imposed this fine. The next step is to obviously challenge it and then scramble to see if just how strong is this threat about February.、Uh, and again, a lot of our players wouldn't be available.、Uh, and how can a、uh, sports governing body become more important than the WHO? Uh, the WHO has been determining 
with all, each of our governments, whether it be civic, provincial, or federal, uh, what are the rules of COVID? So how can you force somebody to contravene the rules of COVID, expose your athletes, staff, and everybody else to it? So as you can see, it's a giant cluster, and uh, it looks like FIBA has put themselves in a, in a bit of a embarrassing situation and even at this point we don't even know if the olympics are going ahead right there's been a lot of kind of back and forth on that that's the next situation which i'm just watching the news as i'm sure you've been this morning where japan is now pushing back to rumors that came out with the uk that tokyo was trying to look for 2032 one of the reasons that I've been watching, and I've been subject to the same politics, we were on the 1980 Olympic team that uh, was forced to respect the boycott when Afghanistan actually ended up going. So I've watched all kinds of ludicrous decisions by the IOC, but the bottom line is uh, it seems uh, a little bit premature to get into whether or not there's going to be an Olympics. I think it will be probably decided by April. Uh but in the case of Japan, um, why don't they just move everything back to the next rotation if they ended up uh, canceling? So, for example, why wouldn't they just do 2024, Tokyo, Paris 2028, L.A. 2032? You've got to think that the IOC leaders mm-hmm. and the world leaders would have common sense about this. Well, you know how that goes, right? Yeah, of course, I it. <laughs> it's not common sense if not enough people have it, it seems like these days. Uh, but when I can't imagine that a lot of athletes, Howard, would feel comfortable even thinking about going somewhere internationally uh, this summer. What has been your sense of that? Well, I, as per last year, if you remember, um, Canada led the charge and our uh, Olympic Association actually the athletes voted and said that they were not open to going. And that began the unraveling. So I would think that pretty soon, I would, I would still think there's a window till April, uh, but I would think that pretty soon you're going to have uh, votes by the Olympic associations of the respective countries. And again, the number one decision is, isn't this a health and medical decision? Mm-hmm. So why are sports governing bodies that are not the supreme authority imposing issues to do with medical issues? It's a good question. Howard, we'll stay on it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Howard Kelsey, former member of the Canadian men's Olympic basketball team, talking about the situation that men's basketball finds itself in, facing fines for refusing to play in tournaments in the Caribbean during the pandemic. They don't want to go down there. They're not supposed to travel. They're doing the right thing. And yet they're going to be financially punished for it. And we don't even know if there's going to be an Olympics this summer or not. Well, the big news today is going to be this press conference that we're expecting from the provincial government scheduled for 1030 this morning. And this is where they are going to be presenting the vaccine rollout plan. Who is going to get the shot and when? What schedule you can expect? And this is despite of the fact that we know that Pfizer has at least announced delays of their shipment of the COVID-19 vaccine. 
We still have other plans. They say this is going to change, right? The vaccine is going to start coming back in the numbers that they expect within a couple of weeks. So we want to know, when are you going to get the shot? So we thought, let's preview this a little bit more. What what does it take to make a plan like this? What are the things that they have to absolutely remember to put in place? We wanted to talk about the complexity of putting all this together and what the timeline might look like. So joining us now is Mahesh Nagarajan, who's the Chair of Operations and Logistics in the Sutter School of Business at UBC. Mahesh, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Simi. What? Where do you even start with a plan like this, Mahesh? Like, what? How? Are, is it not very often that plans like this have to be put together? No, it's not very often at all, um, and certainly not in medicine. It's not very often. Um, you know, we. The, I mean, the good news is that this is not something that's happening today. We've had some time to think about this. I mean, late in fall, we knew that we would get Pfizer and Moderna approved at some point. Unlikely, we'll need to start getting vaccinated. You know, about 4 million people in British Columbia and uh, Justin Trudeau says that we would have them vaccinated by September. So I think we kind of know what we need to do. Um, what the re- it, it's not easy to do it, but we know what we need to do. Okay, so what do we need to do? <laughs> what do we need to do? Yeah. Well, so just let's do some simple math. Um, if you want to get all these people vaccinated by September, we are looking at about 16,000, 17,000 vaccinations a day. That is a lot. That's just a lot. So the way to do it would not be the traditional ways of how we do it, through pharmacies and doctors' offices. We need to set up perhaps special facilities where what I call as high-throughput facilities where people would drive in or walk in and, you know, thousands of people would get vaccinated per day. So we need to set these up. We need to be able to acquire vaccines in a very predictable fashion. I mean, as we already saw, as you mentioned in the opening, that didn't happen. We were supposed to be getting vaccines and that got delayed. Mm -hmm. Hopefully there won't be future delays. If there are future delays, that's going to jeopardize this plan. So we have to mobilize and come up with a distribution plan, like quite like something we have never done before. So it's not just, as you pointed out, we can't just say every pharmacy is going to give these out. Every doctor's office is going to give these out to vaccinate 16, 17,000 people a day. What kind of facilities do we need? Yeah, so let, let's go from that doctor's office stuff. First, you know, even if every doctor and every pharmacy worked full-time, it is not clear if we can actually get it done. And second, they can't work full-time. I mean, they have other jobs to do. <laughs> They're not going to be vaccinating right. people the whole day. And the second thing is these vaccines are a bit more complex, especially the Pfizer one. It requires these very stringent storage uh, requirements that it is not going to be very easy for pharmacies and doctor's office to store up a whole bunch of vaccines. Right, so they need to have like a central facility from which they would pull inventory every day and so on and so forth. All this is very complex and quite costly. And frankly, it's not going to get us to our target. So think about how we do our polling when we have an election. So we need to have a facility where lots and lots of people can drive in, get vaccinated and leave. Now, it's more complicated than polling because when somebody gets vaccinated, very likely they have to stay around for about 15 minutes. Right? We don't know what the allergic reactions are going to look like. There is, then there is the issue of PPEs. It is not at all like polling because you know, each vaccine takes time. People have to don on, don off PPE, syringes, gloves, and so on and so forth. Find a place to store thousands of vaccines in cold storage. Right? So we are looking at opening up you know, schools or grounds, um, uh, you know, facilities of this sort which can accommodate a high volume. In Los Angeles, the plan is to open up the Dodger Stadium, for example, where cars would drive in, people would get a shot in the arm, they would go on hold, and then they would leave. 
Right. So that's the kind of size that we're looking at. But boy, the way you just laid it out there, Mahesh, it just, just shows you the size and the complications that this, this, these plans are going to have to go through, doesn't it? Yes, indeed, it does. Absolutely. Especially for a metro area like Vancouver. Yes. So if you were doing this, where would you start? Well, the way the, we, have, we have done these sorts of things before, not exactly a vaccination within nine months, but we have thought of how would one look at you know, distributing to populations um, uh, you know, at a very, very large scale. First, you would start with the demand. You, would, you, want, to, you want to ask what the demand looks like in any geographical area, what the density of people look like, looks like, and how many people in a certain area are going to get vaccinated. You start from that. And then you start to build up and you ask, okay, if I want to get everybody in a geographic area vaccinated, how am I going to do it? Can I, will I actually be able to use the pharmacy model or am I going to have to go to a high throughput facility? If I go to such a high throughput facility, then I'll work backwards. How is that facility going to get inventory of vaccines periodically? Do I have to store them in a central facility and move them daily or every two days and so on and so forth? Then I need to worry about all the people who are going to be doing it. Do I have enough nurses? Do I have enough pharmacists? Do I have enough people who can actually do the vaccination? Right. So I sort of work backwards and there are ways to do it. It, ca- it calls for a reasonable amount of mathematical modeling and some simulation. And that's exactly what the province is doing. Right. But you can model all that and you can do the simulations, Mahesh, but you just hit on something there is the people. Do we have enough no, abs- people, the nurses and the, all the medical professionals to do this? Absolutely. That is a very, very important question. And the model is going to tell us whether we actually, what, what is the number of people we actually need where and whether we have it or not. Um, I, the, so far, we have reason to believe that we seem to have sufficient capacity to be able to do it. Um, but this is a tricky question because as you astutely point out, people who can do this are quite busy right now. It's not like they have nothing else to do. Right. right? In the United States, what you've noticed is they've pulled people from retirement and they've paid them money. They're seeking volunteers to do this job, right? In Israel, for example, they put people, the people who are doing jobs, they put the jobs on a hold and they work 24-7, right? So that's another question that to ask not just the people, do we have people who can work, you know, 24-7 or are they only going to work eight hours a day, right? Those are questions that are going to come out, come out very soon uh, once this modeling is done. You know, when you put it that way, when you lay it all out like that, Mahesh, it makes me understand much better why it's taken us so long at this point to even get this plan, right? Because that's a lot of work yeah. that has to be done. Yes, it's very complex. It's absolutely very, very complex. And I think what the politicians and what Dr. Bonnie Henry says is absolutely true. We have not done anything of this scale at this complexity any time in recent history. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. I learned so much. Thank you for your time. No problem. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. Mahesh Nagarajan, who's the Chair of Operations and Logistics at the Souter School of Business at UBC. And he sounds like he is great at his job because the way he just laid all that out uh, encapsulated where we are at with this mass vaccination thing, right? Like, sure, we're impatient. Just tell me where I'm, when I can get the shot. But the when is not the problem. It is the how. Well, you're hearing a lot about the Office of the Governor General of Canada right now. And I'm sure you've also heard about the great pension that even Julie Payette is going to continue to receive. 
leads to a lot of questions, right? Like, what is the workload really like for that job? And what do we ask of a governor general and the role that it plays in Canadian government? So we thought, let's talk more about this now, find out what the next steps are going to look like in filling that role. Joining us is Christine DeClercy, who's the Associate Professor at Western University's Department of Political Science and the co-director of Western's Leadership and Democracy Laboratory. Christine, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This has been described as unprecedented, what's going on right now. Would you agree with that? Certainly, um, the resignation of the Governor General is unprecedented, let alone with all the attendant publicity that has surrounded it. And I know there's a lot of questions about the role of the Governor General. Maybe you could explain to people, what exactly does the Governor General do? Right. Well, uh, in Canada, this role has evolved a little bit across time. Uh, modern governor generals are very important symbols of the unity and diversity of the Canadian state. So they have an important symbolic fun- function, which is why we see governors general, say, at military parades or the opening of parliament. Um, these sorts of ceremonial occasions take up a lot of their time. Um, also, the governor general is the repository of the powers of the state of Canada and, of course, is the head of state. So that means they have a very important constitutional role. And both of these aspects of their job actually are pretty onerous. So how do we select someone for that position then? What do we look for? Uh, the, the ideal candidate has uh, evolved a bit across time. At, what, at one point, um, of course, governors general weren't, were appointed for us. And then as Canada become, became more sovereign and independent, we began choosing and nominating our own governors general to the Queen. Recently, there's been a trend, say, over the last 25 years or so, to try to pick people who are not career politicians, are, are, are not so closely wedded to the political apparatus. And in a sense, Julie Payette's selection was, was the epitome of that trend. She was an outsider. She did not participate in, in the, the political life of Ottawa. And in hindsight, that might have been you know, a, 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 a hindrance on her capacity to perform her job. So what, what is this person, what kind of expectations should they have of the job? Because for the next five, seven years, you are essentially going to be performing a lot of ceremonial duties, right? That's right. Well, I, 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 I have two minds about this. On the one hand, um, it's pretty clear what the governor general does. I mean, there's not a lot of mystery about, about the sorts of tasks he or she has to do. On the other hand, this whole episode with Madame Payette has shown us, you know, the people outside of the office, that it's a very onerous job, that there's a, there is a lot of invasion of privacy. There are many aspects like complex human resources issues that you need a good manager to handle. So um, going forward, I think probably future governors general uh, will be more carefully vetted to make sure that they can manage their offices as well as the ceremonial sides of their job. On the other hand, I also want to point out that whenever someone is elected or hired or appointed, there is some risk that this person just won't turn out. And so this has been a very public case of an appointment that didn't turn out well. But the same sort of dynamic could easily apply to members of parliament who are elected or even court justices who are appointed. That is to say, 
a choice is made and that person just for whatever reason is not up to the job that they have been given. So do you think the the hiring process needs more scrutiny then? I know this time there was a lot of controversy over the way in which uh, Julie Payette was hired here. Do we need to go back to more scrutiny of these candidates? Well, I, I, again, I, I think there are arguments on, on both sides. Certainly in uh, Madame Payette's hiring, Mr. Trudeau made a largely unilateral decision. He decided by himself whom to recommend. If you think about it, though, if she had been vetted through a larger committee of experts, yes, they might, they might have said, well, uh, you know, she has problems in her profile. Yes. But she was a star candidate. I mean, it's worth remembering that before she became Governor General, she was already widely revered in Canada as, as one of our best societal leaders. And so it is quite possible that even if a committee had vetted her, they would have come to the same conclusion because she just looked so great and she she was wide, widely celebrated even before becoming gov- Governor General. But certainly having more input from more people would have given Mr. Trudeau more political cover. Right. Interesting times. Christine, thank you. You're so welcome. Christine DeClercy is an associate professor in Western University's Department of Political Science talking about the kind of historic crossroads we find ourselves in when it comes to filling this governor general position.